Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice, and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. Are men the answer to closing the gap between genders? At the current rate of progress, it may take close to 300 years to achieve full gender equality, estimate the UN Women in 2022. People have been working to try and even out the opportunities and challenges facing men and women for arguably centuries. So what are we doing wrong? Well, the International Centre of Research for Women, the ICRW, Hand in Hand and Cartier have teamed up to better understand what it would take to help men help women. Today, they join us to talk about this work and their findings. In some parts of the world, a conflux of challenges face people. Women's roles are perceived as predominantly in the home. Visiting friends or making money is at her husband's discretion. In these same places, few people are employed in the formal economy and living on less than $2.15 a day. Whilst micro-entrepreneurship is perhaps the only route out of poverty, it is these places that hand-in-hand have focused their work and that we are going to focus on in this conversation. So meet social impact pioneers, Dorothea Arndt and Ravi Verma. Dorothea is the CEO of Hand in Hand International, who is a global network of charities supporting women to lift their families out of poverty by launching their own businesses. So far, they've reached 4.2 million enterprises, created 6 million jobs, in the last 20 years. Whilst Dr. Ravi is the director of ICRW Asia, with more than three decades of experience in programmatic research and evaluation in the area of family planning, reproductive health, gender mainstreaming, HIV AIDS in countries throughout Asia. So without further ado, Dorothea, Ravi, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you, Katie. Looking forward. Ah, always looking forward. And, and, and so I wanted to start our first uh, question today. Can you tell us a bit about yourselves? Just paint a picture. What has brought you on the journey that's, that brought you to Hand in Hand, working on um, agenda rights and, and, and those sorts of pieces? Dorothea, perhaps I could turn to you first. Yes, thank you, Katie. Well, Hand in Hand had, of course, been training women to succeed as entrepreneurs for a long, long time before this project kicked off for Think probably more than 15 years. And so we'd been training millions of women, but I would say that we'd been doing it in a way that was, to use a bit of jargon, that was gender sensitive rather than transformative. So what I mean by that is that, you know, we might have been aware of the particular barriers that a woman faces when she's, you know, trying to succeed as an entrepreneur, and we might have navigated around those barriers. So for example, to take a very specific example, we would have made very sure that we scheduled the turning outside of the hours where our women members would have been expected to be at home looking after, after the household chores. 
But what we hadn't really started to do in a very structured way is to think about how could we help our women entrepreneurs, our trainees, actually start to overcome these barriers more proactively. And that was the that idea and that curiosity was was the start of of this project. And then luckily we came across uh, Cartier Philanthropy, who were actually initiating a research project to look into precisely this question: How could this be done? One of these coincidences or synchronicities that felt too good to pass by. So that that was how I became really intrigued and personally very interested in this project. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And what about yourself, Ravi? What's brought you to to working on this topic in general? Thank you, Katie. Uh, well, my uh, coming into this space of gender is very personal to begin with. I grew up in in family with only sons and uh, working in my father working in um, areas where there were no uh, great facilities to socialize or or interact with other larger groups of children and later when i got into my professional journey with formal training in social science and began to work on issues of reproductive health and population issues, I clearly saw how uh, the population control movement, if I can say, was so much done at the cost of women's autonomy, bodily autonomy and, and integrity in order to achieve the population targets. And later during the HIV times when we were working, I was amazed by the fact that despite the despite men being the carrier of a virus, it was always women who were stigmatized. And we did a lot of work among the women in sex work and and other sexual identities, you know, groups. And it it made me really conscious of myself, my own past as as men belonging to larger men's group. And not developing sensitivities to the issues of gender and women and just imposing as to what we think is right. And then came the era of this violence prevention, you know, in, in two later years. And again, we uh, I have been working on these issues, uh, trying to understand why is it that uh, women have always been at the at the receiving end of the gender spectrum. And that, that really made me curious to explore more throughout this 20, 25 years of journey from my childhood to the profession has been in sync with each other. And I always think that I'm learning every day uh, the complex realities of both men, women and other genders and the larger gender norms that impacts us at individual level and also the larger society and how we sometime and more often than not take these issues for granted, we, we normalize them. So yes, so I'm here as someone who is learning and and this is for me a personal journey as well. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that some of that learning with us, uh, Ravi. And, and so I was just curious, listening to you talking, in that journey, that 25 years, why do you feel that men need to be part of that women's empowerment journey? And like, what, what have you sort of started to learn about that topic? Ravi? Men have to be part of this discourse and be part of women's empowerment issues for their own sake, 
my learning has been that if men are not part of the journey, they are the ones who lose out more than what they think. They have been the custodians of certain norms that are fundamentally against them. It, they, I always think men are the victims of their own makings. They grow up as persons who don't value emotions, caring, relationship, sharing. They think that violence is the only way to resolve conflicts. Men and boys grow up, you know, if you look at how boys' rights to passage is so rough and so abusive, and they have no, no one to share because that is so normalized. So sexual violence against boys in growing up is, is something that have always remained under carpet and has not been recognized. So my sense is that the issue of women's empowerment is not really an issue of only women's empowerment. This is an issue of making sure that men begin to see their own stakes in this process where they also feel empowered. You know, they begin to uh, feel that they are out of that straight-jacketed model of what society expects them to do. They have a they have space to do what they want to do without feeling oppressed by this gender regime that many scholars have talked about. So, so I think it is for their own sake that, and for the larger society as well, it is important that they are part of this discourse, this part of these efforts and they take ownership. Thank you for sharing. And, and Dorothy, bringing you back in at this point, I mean, for the work that you guys have been doing and, and you've been leading, what have you been sort of learning about why men and communities need to be part of women's empowerment? Katie, thanks. I think Ravi has actually beautifully described the social and almost emotional dimension of gender dynamics. So I won't say very much more about that. And maybe rather focus on the economic side of this because, you know, hand in hand, we are very focused on the economic dimension, of course, of women's power. And and maybe allow me to just pick two examples there to illustrate why it's so important that women, that men and communities are engaged in the solution. So first example is one of my favorite quotes from the research, uh, which you'll find in the report, in fact, is one of the men uh, told uh, the researchers that if he saw, and this was, of course, before the, the project kicked off, if he saw one of his uh, friends helping with housework, let's say in the kitchen or so, he would think that that man had been possessed by witchcraft. And so, you know, if that's the scenario, and if as a woman, you're trying to make a business, a small business succeed, and you're spending seven to nine hours a day on housework, then it just doesn't work. So absolutely, you need your husband to be to be part of the team. And maybe more widely than speaking about the communities, again, to pick an example, many of the women we trained already knew that they could probably fetch a better price for their vegetables or their produce if they were able to sell it in the market rather than just in the neighborhood of their village. But the mother-in-law said, oh, look, no self-respecting woman would ever go and sell in the market. So you can't possibly do that. So again, there's a very direct financial implication there. And you have to, to make cultural gatekeepers part, part of the solution. It does make so much sense. But in practice, I'm sure that's 
even more complicated to try and break down those sorts of uh, stereotypes. And and so I was wondering whether, Ravi, you wouldn't mind sort of coming back in here at this point and sharing how you are seeing both men and women being disadvantaged by these kind of restrictive gender stereotypes. Well, I, I think both of them are not really responsible for what they are into. They are product of structures and institutions and the norms that are beyond them. And these structures, whether formal or informal, within the communities, within the larger governance, political economy system, are deeply patriarchal in nature. And they demand certain kinds of division of work and and labor. And in order to reach that kind of an objective of larger market economy and social structures that are patriarchal, they impose you know, certain expectations that are, that are equally disadvantageous to both women and men. And one can clearly see uh, how um, the most fundamental gender norm is about the care, who is the primary person to take care and who is the one who provide who is provider and the world gets divided in this kind of monolithic understanding of who can do these who can perform these acts well and reproductive or the biology becomes the foundation for justifying the caregiving role for women and society the community the structures the men everyone begin to begin to take away all the opportunities, growth opportunities from girls right from the day one when they are born in schools and later to even get into that space where they can achieve or they can try for economic aspirations or or become an economic entity. And at the same time, boys are pushed into playing a role into into something which is unemotional, ungendered, as if they are the yardsticks and they begin to take too much on on them and begin to ignore the diversity that exists both between men and women between women and women and between men and men and as a result we don't develop the sensitivities to intersectional nature of marginalizations or inequalities men and women both come from various kinds of backgrounds, you know, social, economic, linguistic, ethnic, race, caste in India, for example, their abilities to learn, their abilities to articulate their language, their own physical abilities, disabilities, and they all are the parameters on which they are either disadvantaged or advantaged, depending on what the broader social and gender norms are. And then you begin to see both women and men of marginalized or unequal structures begin to get more marginalized. They begin to lose out. So we we don't, uh, and, and in this entire process of marginalization and selection of people who are, who are fit for meeting these larger agenda of uh, patriarchy and market economy, which is aggressive and, and profit-oriented, creates a, a gender a gendered ways of looking at people and that's very unjust so i i think the structures communities institutions need to 
look at inwardly to see what kind of value systems they are nurturing, sustaining, encouraging that are becoming unjust to those who are who are on the margins. The one of the key driving philosophy of SDG is to leave no one out, reach the last person on the on the mile. And that means we we must be sensitive to and be inclusive to the person who is most marginalized with respect to all these characteristics. And gender norms in very monolithic and homogeneous or cohesive kind of understanding don't allow us to look at that diversity. So everyone gets disadvantaged. But that's why we need people like you, Ravi, who pull this apart and keep working at it and and keep deeply trying to understand it. And Dorothy, I wanted to bring you back in at this point and ask you to sort of share a bit of the insights and the results, therefore, from the work that you have been doing and and, and a bit, just a bit about what the research says. I'm very mindful that the research is obviously a tome of absolute treasure and urging everybody who's listening to this to go and have a look at it. But but Dorothy, perhaps just the sort of headlines? Yes, Katie, and I, I will try and just uh, stick to two headlines. Maybe the, the first one is to highlight the results we saw on savings. And just to explain briefly which groups we were comparing there and over what period. First of all, the project took place from February 2019 to June 2023. And so the eagle-eyed amongst you will have spotted that it took place literally a year before the pandemic started. And it then the, the majority of the fieldwork took place during the pandemic. So that's an important context uh, for what I'm about to mention about the income results. And secondly, what we were doing is really training two groups of women. 300 women were trained with a a business training that was enriched with a a curriculum that focused on gender issues and gender questions and and, and gender norms. And the second uh, group were given exactly the same training, again, 300 women. But the difference there was that we also involved their husbands. So we also involved 300 husbands into the, the gender component of the training. And also the wider community, you know, what we would call stakeholders in the community, church leaders, et cetera. And so what we were keen to see is what was the result across the board from the the gender training, but then also what was the difference, if any, from involving the men in the training and being part of the solution. So what we found was a fascinating result on savings. So for the women whose husbands were involved in the training, we saw an uplift in savings over this period of about $20. And the reason why that's so meaningful is that this was, of course, as I said, during the pandemic period. So to see an uplift in savings is really impressive during that period. Whereas what we saw for the women whose husbands were not involved in the training is that their savings went down by $20, decreased by $20, which again, given the context of the pandemic, is not surprising. But so what we're seeing there is that there was a direct link between involving the men and the communities and the women being able to hold on to some of their savings better and being able to. And that's really important because in a society where, you know, your own savings might be your first source of capital, it's, you know, savings are always important, but they are particularly important if you're an entrepreneur because it's your first source of capital. So that was the first finding. and. The second finding, which is related to it, was on income. 
So what we saw is that all of the women across the board saw an increase in their income. In fact, they more than doubled their income, which again, given that we were looking at pre-pandemic income and post-pandemic income, and given the fact that during this period, the vast majority of people who would have been living below the poverty line, as our members do, would have slid even further into poverty. And this is well documented. That is an impressive result on its own. And I think really shows the effectiveness of uh, adding a gender component to a more general uh, entrepreneurship training. And then when we look at the difference again between the women whose husbands were involved and those whose husbands weren't, uh, what we're finding is a slightly more nuanced picture. So what we're finding is that for one group of women whose husbands were involved, they saw an incredible increase in an incremental increase in income. So their incomes, if we look at it on an annual basis, they would have increased their incomes by $1,100 over and above that of the other group. So for a $15 intervention, we saw a return on investment of $1,100. For me, that's a, a very interesting result. However, as I said, the picture was nuanced. And what we saw is that we only achieved that result in a statistically valid way for the second group of entrepreneurs we trained. For the first group of entrepreneurs we trained, we also saw that difference, but it wasn't statistically valid. And so what that is telling us is that we would like to explore this dynamic a little bit further in, in a further research project. But I won't say too much about that as at this stage. Oh, leaving my cliffhanger there. <laughs> for anybody who wants to find out more about this, I will put the links into the words that sit alongside the chat. But oh my gosh, that's some significant, I mean, as you say, the return on investment from sort of $15 investment to to increases of in- income during such tough times. I, yeah, I, my eyes are sort of watering with, can't wait to see what you're doing next. Uh, Ravi, I wanted to bring you in now. I mean, clearly this is one particular piece of work and and bit of research, but you've been working at this coalface for a long time. What other examples do you have particularly that you'd like to share today with regards to male or men being engaged with these sorts of women's and female empowerment projects? What's really so working to successfully change behaviours and and crack these social stereotype norms? Well, uh, the journey of men on gender equality uh, projects have always been complex and and I would say not linear. Most of the programs that I have worked for the last 20-25 years, I have seen different men uh, following different kinds of trajectories on this in, on this journey of gender equality. Why? Because every man does not start his journey at the same point. They all are struggling with their own bottlenecks of how to engage with the issues of gender in their own personal lives within themselves and also in relation to whom they are living as partners or others in the family and relations. And that means uh, many of them first have to sort out their own dilemmas, who they are, what they are doing in an introspective manner. And that creates a lot of dissonance in their own minds. And we have, I have seen that the journey has always been very interesting in many cases where it first lands them into a state of confusion 
in state of dilemmas and then they find their own ways of addressing those dilemmas and that's what we want in in most programs that i have been and my colleagues my my partners have been engaged within the communities in my own personal journey also i have seen the very first recognition that men find themselves into is that they are being pushed back by their own peers and their own networks whom they relate to and that's not very easy to cope with and and that is the time you know much greater conversations and perhaps more time within themselves to resolve we have produced a couple of videos and testimonies of of how men in these programs have gone through a journey and many of them at the end of the successful stories are where men have said that there's nothing like masculinity you know it is almost like a non existent concept it is from masculinity to man a bodily man that one has to deal with i i must deal with my own body and my uh, myself as, as an individual rather than the larger social construct of of masculinity which is imposed by others and that journey uh, once they reach at that age then it is very satisfying because then they begin to relate to other as as a human beings um dorothy i want to pick up with you next from the work that you've been doing are you possibly in a, able to sort of share with us a bit about what your advice might be for others who are potentially listening to this conversation today yes i can i would have uh, two pieces of advice and number one i would say what we learn in this project that yes of course it was vital to bring the men on the journey here in the way that ravi has described and that was key but i think what we learned was that it was equally key to bring the community leaders also on board and again just to take an example to illustrate that point i think in the in the focus groups one of the the men shared that he was actually quite happy to uh support his wife uh with housework and he was quite happy to be involved and this was a, actually a finding in general that the men who had participated in the training increased their share of housework by an hour a day but what he also said is oof well if a church leader saw me doing that i i'd be concerned about what he would think about me and so when we first when our trainers first started this project they were actually being called what they call bad names so you know the, the community was asking themselves what you know why are you becoming involved in these very personal issues around marriage and and relationships and yet now by the end of the project the church leaders are actually coming to our team and they're calling them marriage experts and they're involving them in the in the marriage counseling that the church there organizes before before weddings so that's that's really lovely to see and that that's a that's a huge turnaround and one that's been very beneficial so my advice would be make sure you bring the stakeholders on board with you and my second advice would be that there is a so-called male engagement toolkit which is really a summary of of lessons learned and instruments and tools and processes uh in this kind of work which our partners in this project Cartier Philanthropy 
are going to publish sometime next year. And of course, that that will be a good one to look out for as well. We will definitely look out for that. And and I will make sure that the links go into the words that sit alongside um, so that everybody can uh, follow that and, and be part of the conversation too, as and when uh, further research comes out. Or indeed, if you want to get involved and, and find out more directly, I'll make sure I connect you uh, to potentially Ravi and Dorothea as well, for anybody who's listening. Ravi, I'm very mindful of the unique position that you sit in. You're in a, you know, you've been looking at this space for a long time. You've got that kind of deep knowledge, but also from a kind of social scientist, but also the sort of the, the wider sort of male engagement perspective. What trends are you seeing at this time that perhaps others who are listening might not be so aware of? Thank you, Katie, for asking this question. I'm really wary of some of the trends that we have seen in recent times, especially if I can name Andrew Tate's phenomenon with huge mass following of young men and boys and self-proclaimed misogynist is, is only a small, I think, tip of the iceberg of the kind of backlash that feminist movements or women's empowerment or gender equality discourses have been facing with the rising trend uh, from conservative forces. So it, it is a clash of ideology. In, and women become, as always, the victims of the, these clashes of, of the huge ideological wars that happen, women and children. And we are seeing it in the social media. We see in the communities when we begin to work, how men, the first reaction of men is that, are you making us women? You know, that binary, uh, simplistic idea of of seeing oneself only as, as a man, as a homogeneous category of man who is supposed to be doing these big things is something worrisome and one needs to be aware and consciously stand against this. I think all of us and all those who believe in a just and equal society and well-being for all must be, you know, they should not really ignore these trends. They should respond to these trends of anti-family. I am using the word feminist deliberately because I, I think the whole idea of equality comes from that power, analysis of power, and that is the essence of feminism. So my sense is that we should all be cognizant of these trends be res- and, and respond to them in considered thoughtful ways without becoming re- reactionaries or getting trapped into argumentative kind of uh, mode, because these are bigger issues and require multiple levels of responses from you know from the different institutions and and communities and men and that is why i think eco eco ecological approach to this whole issue is, is so critical you know programs that only make men or women responsible for these changes or put the onus on to individuals are setting themselves against failure you know these men and women as individuals can be the change makers but there's a limited way in which they can make a bigger difference or lasting difference in many programs we have seen and we deliberately uh, intentionally don't create positive masculinities ideas or he don't create heroes in them 
we say that if inequality is normalized, let us normalize equality. And that means that no one is a hero, no one is champion. The word champion in this in this uh, space of equality means that we are differentiating uh, between some who are not able to be champions, whereas we think everybody is championing this issue in their own ways. And that means anyone and everyone should raise their own voice of resistance wherever they are, whichever sphere they are. When they see this kind of gender unjust comments, sexist comments happens all the time in our personal lives, in, uh, in family groups of WhatsApp, those trends that people laugh at or pass as something lighter in lighter jokes. So yes, I'm mindful of all the time of the pushbacks and resistance to equality in many different ways. Oh, but thank you so much, Ravi, for not only highlighting that, but also I think giving us the power and the permission to all tackle it in our day-to-day lives. So everybody listening, come on, we've got to, you know, if you see that just everyday sexism, you know, it's not necessary. It's not even on the social media where I was sort of hoping that it might stay. We, we just, we cannot let us go backwards. Um, and, and Dorothea, therefore, I sort of wanted to leave the last word with you, really. I mean, where next for you, for your work, for this research and, and for you personally? Thank you, Katie. I really want to uh, applaud uh, Ravi for mentioning that there are no champions in this work and that it's not about bigging up one side over the other. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes still on this topic is comes from Obama's visit to Kenya when he he said, look, if you're not letting women succeed, then it's like having a team where half of your team is uh, sitting on the bench. How can you win the game? And I think that's such a simple and powerful image. And it's it shows, of course, that, you know, we're all players in this and we're all equal players. So so I love that as an image, maybe for, for all of us to kind of take forward in our daily lives. Coming back specifically to Hand in Hand. So our colleagues in Tanzania, from having been initially quite skeptical about this work, they're now determined that they really ideally would like to make sure that every project they carry out has a component of gender trans, has that gender transformative curriculum integrated into it. And so as we speak at the moment, they are kind of busily rolling out this approach to another 12,000 women in northern Tanzania, women and men, I should say. And equally, I've just mentioned Kenya. Our colleagues in Kenya at Hand in Hand Eastern Africa observed this this project and the, the amazing results with a great deal of interest. And they would love to run a similar research project as we did in Tanzania, perhaps on a larger scale. And so if you're on this podcast and you work for a company or a research organization or really any organization that's interested in this issue. And if you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then please get in touch via the links that Katie will post. And and we'd love to talk about helping women entrepreneurs succeed despite the odds in Kenya also. Well, there you go. What a wonderful invite for anybody listening. I will indeed post those um, notes and uh, links into the chat. Dorothea and uh, Ravi, I wanted to conclude our conversation today by just saying thank you so much for sharing a wisdom with us and, and taking us on that journey and empowering us all to um, try and keep tackling those gender norms. Every day, we can do it. Dorothea, Ravi, thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us 
I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 